You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In 1999, Nicholas Strickland went on a holiday to the Caribbean island of Tobago and strolled the beaches looking for shells and coral when she came upon a tree dropping green fruit that looked kind of like crab apples. Strickland had a munch on the sweet-tasting fruit before a burning sensation and extreme tightness in the throat got so bad she could barely swallow. She had discovered the manchineel tree, what the Spanish explorers dubbed Arbol de la Muerte, the tree of death. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yep, Moxie's doing it again. One of those topics that sounds boring in passing, like mud or salt, but it is my considered opinion that any topic will provide you with fascination if you simply stare at it long enough. I mean, there are over three trillion with a tango tea trees in the world. You can't tell me they're all boring. Trees are key players in many mythologies and folklore. They give us lots of our oxygen, though they're not the number one, shade to cool our concrete jungles. Sorry about all your brethren we ripped out to do that. They provide us with fruits and nuts. I mean, we couldn't have Nutella if we didn't have trees. Provide homes for country critters, and they can talk to one another, albeit with a little help. All the trees around the world form a symbiotic association with below-ground fungi. The fungi send tiny threads called mycelium through the soil. The mycelium picks up nutrients and water, giving them to the roots, and exchanges it for the water, sugar, and other things that the plant makes through photosynthesis. Ultimately, together, both can thrive when they might not otherwise. The mycelium effectively increase the surface area of the root system by a great degree, somewhere between a lot and very. It also creates a network that connects one tree root system to another, so that they can share nutrients and water, a sort of wood-wide web. Eh, I'm working. The word for the mutually beneficial relationship is mycorrhiza. If you're participating in an adult spelling bee anytime soon, that's M-Y-C-O-R-R-H-I-Z-A-E. While doing her doctoral thesis some 20-plus years ago, ecologist Suzanne Simmer discovered that trees actually communicate their needs to one another. To test her hypothesis, she and her colleagues infused trees with a traceable radioactive form of carbon and later took samples from the neighboring trees. Those neighbors had the radioactive carbon, proving that the plants could send nutrients back and forth to one another. Plants need sunlight to photosynthesize or turn carbon dioxide and water into sugar, aka energy, and oxygen. Simard found that trees in the shade where photosynthesis is harder to pull off actually got more of the radioactive carbon than their sunnier siblings. So the plants actually know who needs what? Since then, Simard has pioneered further research into how trees communicate, including how the fungus contributes to their ability to send warning signals about environmental changes. 
The first few talking tree papers were quickly shot down. I mean, talking trees. You can see how that would be a high bar to clear with a lot of people. Statistically flawed, other scientists said, or too artificial or irrelevant. Research ground to a halt. But the science of plant communication is staging a comeback. Rigorous, carefully controlled experiments are overcoming those early criticisms with repeated testings in labs, forests, and fields. It's now well established that when bugs chew on plants' leaves, the plant responds by releasing volatile organic compounds into the air. The establishment of airborne plant patter puts Simard's research back on the table. By last count, 40 out of 48 studies on plant communication confirm that other plants can detect those airborne signals and ramp up their production of their chemical defense or other means. Of course, this doesn't mean that plants have neurons and brains and language like we do, but hey, trying to tie them to our standards just doesn't do this process justice. Now, a handy place to start if you find yourself ever needing to research and write for a podcast is with superlatives, words that end with EST, like oldest, tallest, thickest, even loneliest. For example, the tree with the largest crown, i.e. the spread of its limbs out from the main trunk, is the Tamama Marimanu, a banyan tree in Anantapur, India. Its canopy covers 4.7 acres, or 19,000 square meters. For perspective, the average lot that they're putting in subdivisions these days is about a quarter of an acre or less. So this tree's canopy could shade 19 homes in the suburbs. The highest tree in the world is the rare Polylepis tomantella, which grows at elevations of at least 13,000 feet or 4,000 meters in the central Andes. Despite the dry conditions the region is famous for, these trees can reach more than 700 years old. For the lowest tree, let's look at instead the deepest. My mom always said that there's as much tree below ground as there is above ground, and this superlative belongs to a fig tree in the appropriately named Echo Caves in South Africa. The tree needs a lot of water so the fruit-bearing part on the surface can survive, and it grows deep roots in search of it. The tree has spent 70 years sending its roots as much as 400 feet or 122 meters deep to pump 7 gallons or 25 liters of water a day. Now, if you don't have 70 years to wait, try the Paulowina tomentosa of central and western China, the fastest-growing tree in the world. Also called the princess tree or the empress tree, they can grow by a foot or 30 centimeters in three weeks and can get as tall as 20 feet or 6 meters in the first year. I've got a red maple in the backyard that's three years old and is still not eye-level with me, a scathing indictment. The princess tree also produces large quantities of oxygen, nearly three to four times more than other known tree species. Before you at me on the social media, Facebook and Instagram.com, your brain on facts, Twitter, brain on facts pod, about bamboo growing faster, so fast it can be used as an implement of torture, according to my dad that one time, well, you better come correct, because bamboo is a grass. At the other end of the spectrum, the slowest growing tree is an individual white cedar on a cliffside in the Canadian Great Lakes region. It's managed to grow to an impressively unimpressive height of 10.2 centimeters, about four inches, and it only took it 155 years. That's an average growth rate of 0.6 millimeter per year. 
And that white cedar doesn't have a ton of company on the cliffside, but it's doing better than the loneliest tree in the world. For century, a lone acacia tree stood in the sea of sand that is the Nigerian Sahara. To generations of weary travelers, the solitary tree offered an important bit of shade and a critical reference point. European military campaigners learned what the Tuareg people had known for generations and included the tree, dubbed L'Abre de Tenere, and included it on maps. It was the only tree around for 250 miles, or over 400 kilometers. It was not only a natural navigation aid, but also a monument to the resiliency of life in the desert. It's also a symbol of interdependence and considerate sharing of resources. Wrote Michael Lesourd in 1939, How can it still be living in spite of the multitudes of camels which trample at its sides? Why don't the numerous Tuareg leading the salt caravans cut its branches to make fires to brew their tea? But no one would let their animals eat it or snap off its branches to make a cuppa. 1939 was also the year that a well was dug near the tree, which offered a hint at its odds-flipping-off survival. The tree, only 10 feet tall, had roots that stretched more than 100 feet or 30 meters to the water table. It was estimated to be over 300 years old, the sole survivor of an ancient grove that existed when the region was less arid. And then in 1973, it got hit by a drunk driver. Allegedly. According to a contemporaneous report, a truck driver following a roadway that traced the old caravan route collided with the tree, snapping its trunk. The only tree for 250 miles in any direction, and your man managed to hit it. In an instant, one act of carelessness severed a link to history. Not long after, the remains of the tree were relocated to the National Museum of Niger and placed in a mausoleum. At the spot where Labra du Tenere had stood, a simple metal sculpture was erected, marking the spot where the tree had stood solitary watch over the dunes, and where nothing was likely to ever stand again. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. 
On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to Zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. But let's go for more quantifiables in our quest. Tallest tree is trickier than it sounds. The heights of the tallest trees in the world have been the subject of considerable debate and not a small amount of exaggeration. You know how some people get when they measure something. The more mature measurement methods are routinely rarely reliable. More recent measurements verified with laser rangefinders have shown that some older trees were recorded at more than 15% more than their real height. Historical claims of trees growing to 500 feet are now largely disregarded and attributed to human error. The current record is 380 feet or 116 meters, and it's held by a Hyperion redwood, Sequoia sempervirens, in the Redwood National Park in California. That is, for additional perspective, 35 stories tall. I can't remember the last time I was in a building with more than 7 or 10 stories, let alone 35. Measuring on the other axis, the world's thickest tree is at least as impressive. A Montezuma cypress in Oaxaca, Mexico, has a diameter of 38 feet or 12 meters across, measured at breast height, as was the custom. That's even bigger than the baobab tree in Limpopo, South Africa, that had a wine bar inside its trunk, until sadly it split a few years ago. But there's still the designation of the world's largest. Well, what's largest if it doesn't mean tallest or fattest? The largest trees are defined as having the highest volume of wood in a single stem. That distinction matters when you consider Pondo, which we'll do in a minute. Measuring for largest tree is a complex task, particularly if branch volume is going to be included as well as trunk volume. So the measurements have only been made for a small number of trees and generally only for the trunk. Just not practical otherwise. Few attempts have been made to include the root or leaf volume because how or why would you ever do that? The top 13 contenders on the list of world's largest, such as number one seed, 53,000 cubic foot or 1,500 cubic meter, General Sherman. 13 of those are giant sequoias. To find a tree on the list that is not in California, you'll have to hop a really long flight and go to New Zealand. On the North Auckland Peninsula is Tene Mahuta, the last example of an ancient rainforest that once covered the area. The 18,000 cubic foot or 516 cubic meter giant cowrie tree is named for the Maori god of forests and birds. If there are question marks among the measurements of dimensions, surely measuring age is easier. That's a negative, Ghost Rider. For scientists, accurately proving the age of any long-lived species is a prickly task. For example, in 2006, scientists found a quahog clam called Ming was 507 years old, more than 100 years older than they thought, by killing it. Already I suspect you see the flaw in the standard method of determining the age of a tree by counting its rings, one per growth year. The second problem is that that process, known as dendrochronology, only works on certain types of trees that have annual growth spurts. But for the trees that do, ring counting is no longer a sure death sentence. 
Arboriculturalists get the info they need with an increment borer, a drill that allows them to take a core sample to count the rings without fatally damaging the tree. It's like giving a small tissue sample for a biopsy. I had one done the other year, and I have these bizarrely perfectly round scars, just as I imagine the trees have now. It's a delicate task taking those samples. In the 1960s, one scientist's drill broke off inside a bristlecone pine that he was sampling. It is a specialty tool, and if you've ever had to buy a specialty part, you know it costs a pretty penny. A forester helpfully cut the tree down to help him recover the drill bit, whereupon they discovered that bristlecone pine had been over 5,000 years old. Teams of researchers in the U.S. keep a list, called the Old List, of officially dated ancient trees. They found a sacred fig tree in Sri Lanka that's at least 2,200 years old. There's a Patagonian cypress in Chile, which at 3,600 years old is as old as Stonehenge. A Great Basin bristlecone pine in California's White Mountains, nicknamed Methuselah, clocks in at 4,850 years old. But the oldest tree on the list, an unnamed bristlecone pine from the same location, had a core suggesting that it is 5,067 years old. Think about that, 5,000 years. This specific individual tree was already fully grown when the ancient Egyptians started building their pyramids and mammoths still walked the earth. And there is, of course, a complexity with the question of the oldest. Are we counting strictly individuals or clonal organisms, like certain plants or fungal colonies, which are made up of younger offshoots but are part of a continuously living core being? If you'll accept clonal organisms, and why not, we're very accepting around here, we need to cast our eye to Sweden and the province of Dalarna. There we'll find a spindly spruce that's been cloning itself for 9,550 years. The tree you see today is much younger, researchers reported in 2008, but it's genetically identical to the wood below that dates to 9,550 years, around the time Neolithic man decided he was tired of moving house constantly and he might be keen to settle down, put in a garden, brew a little beer, and bake a little bread. Adding to the Delarna spruce's fascination factor, until the 1940s, it grew as a sprawling bush, when the warming climate spurred the trunk to grow upward. This latest incarnation of the spruce stands straight and tall, towering well over its surroundings. But that 9,550 years is a pathetic piffle compared to an even older clonal organism in south-central Utah, a quaking aspen colony called Pondo, the trembling giant. Pondo is thought to have been shooting up genetically identical trees for around 80,000 years. Covering about 107 acres, it was estimated in 1992 to weigh more than 13 million pounds. Unfortunately, according to the U.S. Forest Service, though, Pondo is dying. New shoots aren't coming up to replace the old ones the way it used to, or needs to. The cause is suspected to be a combination of climate change, drought, and predation. Pondo is a massive grove of 47,000 genetically identical stems originating from a single underground organism, the roots of the quaking aspen. 
and weighing in at 13 million pounds, he's also the world's largest organism by mass. Quaking aspens can reproduce by disseminating seeds, but more frequently, they send up a shoot from their roots and form a mass of trees aptly known as a clone. It may look like a forest, but it's actually one tree-ish, one enormous clone. The name Pondo, which is not a reference to the fly-looking character who loses an arm in the cantina in Star Wars A New Hope because the vowels are transposed, is Latin for eye spread. It sounds like a male name, ending in an O as it does, and that suits the job since the plant is genetically male. Scientists have been worried about Pondo's health for several decades, putting up fences to try to protect the new shoots from nibbling animals. Pondo seemed to have lived in harmony with the local wildlife for thousands of years, but in recent years, the balance has shifted. While Pondo has likely existed for thousands of years, we have no method of firmly fixing its age. It is now collapsing on our watch, says Paul Rogers, director of the Western Aspen Alliance. Unlike a normal grove of individual trees, Rogers says, Pondo is a single organism, and as such, is much more vulnerable to change in the environment. It has to share all of its resources across those 107 acres. And to stay alive, it has to send up new shoots to gather sunlight and water as the older stems die off. Unfortunately, mule deer think Pondo's new outgrowths are just the bee's knees. And like the goats I used to farm, they will find and exploit defects in the fence, or just jump clear over it. Now, that is no mean feat. That fence is eight feet tall. Quadrupeds with cravings may be eating Pondo's new growth, but ultimately, human activity is to blame. Show of hands if you were surprised by that. Under a U.S. Forest Service grazing allotment, ranchers are allowed to let their cattle graze at Pondo for about two weeks every year, according to the study. Another major problem is the lack of apex predators in the area. In the early 1900s, Humans aggressively hunted animals like wolves, mountain lions, and bears, which would naturally have kept the mule deer population in check. Further, state wildlife agencies fund themselves in part by issuing hunting licenses, so they're effectively incentivized to keep the deer population high so the hunters keep coming. Human interventions, which also include shrub removal, pruning, and selective burning, have proved insufficient to help Pondo's plight. Pondo was least able to regenerate in the parts that were unprotected by a fence, or a fence that the deer had gotten through. The fenced-in, actively regulated areas fared a little better. But overall, Pondo is just not regenerating as he needs to. As part of the new study, the team also analyzed aerial photographs of Pondo taken over the past 72 years. The images drive home the grove's dire state. In the late 1930s, the crowns of the trees were touching. But over the past 30 to 40 years, large gaps have begun to appear in the forest, indicating that new trees aren't coming up to replace the old ones that have died. As with all the other changes we've wrought on this old world of ours, all we can do is change our behavior and hope, however futilely, to clean up the mess we've made. It appears that Pondo might stand a chance if we can fence him in and actively keep the mule deer out. But doing so would require more than we're willing to spend. If you find the idea of a tree with a name irksome, you're about to be further discomfited. How about a tree with 
property rights. If there's not enough humidity where you live, you can take a trip to Athens, Georgia to meet the tree that owns itself. In the summer of 1890, a white oak tree called the Jackson tree was granted a plot of land in an eight-foot radius around itself by its owner, William H. Jackson. For and in consideration of the great love I bear this tree and the great desire I have for its protection for all time, I convey entire possession of itself and all the land within eight feet of the tree on all sides. For all time didn't work out quite as well as Jackson hoped. The tree was toppled by a windstorm in 1942, but it was really only a matter of time before something took it. It had been befeebled by old age. Also by this time, the tree had become a local landmark and the community rallied to replace it. Four years later, the Junior Ladies Garden Club planted a new tree which grew from the acorns of the original Jackson tree. So it would technically be the son of the tree that owns itself, even if that sounds like a very bad horror movie. But does it actually own itself? The common law of the state of Georgia dictates that any person or thing receiving property must have the legal capacity to accept said property. And the tree just can't. Regardless of the actual legal status, the city of Athens still acknowledges the tree's rights and maintains the tree as part of the municipal street cleanup. The oak has become a celebrated member of the community, with the locals throwing it birthday parties and decorating it for Christmas. That is some heartwarming shit right there. Would it be equivalently dramatic, though, if the tree were arrested? Eight years after the Jackson tree was planted, in 1898, a banyan tree located in the Landai Kotal army camp in present-day Pakistan was arrested on the orders of a British army officer. It's still in custody to this day, all bound up in a chain, I guess so that it doesn't escape. According to the reports in several Pakistani newspapers, the story goes like this. Over a hundred years ago, during the high noon of the British Empire, Army officer James Squid saw an old banyan tree and thought it was lurching towards him. The officer was intoxicated, allegedly. He felt threatened by the tree and ordered the mess sergeant to arrest it. When an officer says, you do. The mess sergeant followed the officer's orders and chained the offending tree. It stands in the exact same spot today, having lurched toward exactly no one, with a board hanging on it that reads... I am under arrest. Locals say the captive tree is a symbol of the draconian British Raj. People often visit the area just to look at the incarcerated tree. Landi Kotal, located at the western edge of the Khyber Pass that traditionally marks the entrance to Afghanistan, has witnessed the jostle of multiple empires as they fought for their remote, rich expanses of the Hindu Kush. The tree remains chained as a symbol. One resident told a local paper, the tree is a constant reminder of injustice and unfair laws. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The Manchineel tree literally holds the record for the most dangerous tree in the world. Every single part of it is extremely poisonous and readily lethal. There have been reports of severe cases of eye inflammation and temporary blindness caused by the smoke of burning Manchineel wood to say nothing of inhaling it. The tree produces a thick, milky sap, 
which infuses and oozes out of every part of it, which can cause severe burn-like blisters if it comes in contact with the skin. The sap is also water-soluble, so don't even stand under a manchineel tree if it's raining. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.